The Water Values Podcast, Session 109. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resource treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave Higgins. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, before we get started, we, we have first off, we have a great show for you. We have Jimmy Emmons, who is a, a no-till farmer in Oklahoma, and he's going to talk to us about ag and water and how no-till farming and soil health farming uh, can you know really uh, conserve water, increase yields, uh, do some some incredible things uh, from from a water perspective, let alone the ag perspective and soil health perspective. But uh, uh, he, he's he does a fantastic job. You're going to love listening to Jimmy. Uh, but we also have another Bluefield on Tap session for you today. We've got a bonus Bluefield on Tap session. We got one at the beginning and one at the end. Reese uh, Tisdale joins us uh, to talk about ag water first. And then at the end of the podcast, we'll have one on uh, Reese's thoughts on Hurricane Harvey and the impacts uh, in the water sector that that Hurricane Harvey uh, will will leave on us. But before we get to to the Bluefield on Tap segment, uh, first off, uh, thank you very much to Lon Johnson from Michigan for leaving a fantastic five star rating and review on iTunes. Who says uh, Lon says it's a great podcast. I always appreciate. The uh, unique and informative content concerning policy, finance, and science aspects of water. Uh, I'm glad you love it, uh, Lon. Thank you so much for the great rating and review. Really appreciate it. We also had a, uh, a rating from Kager, uh 211 who, who gave us three stars. Um, it says, Kager 211 says, I love the content of the pod t- podcast, but I can't handle the large variation in sound volume between host and guest. Is it just me? Uh, and... I think I, I've I've heard this complaint before, and I don't. I'm not 100 percent sure how to solve it. Uh, you know, I obviously am kind of doing this on the side. It's not. I'm not a sound engineer, uh, but fortunately, uh, a a listener has volunteered to try and figure this issue out, uh, and so I've I've given that listener some access to the raw audio to see if he can figure out what's going on and how to f- how to fix that problem. Um, and again, on, on my machine, on my iPhone and all that, I, I don't hear any sound variation. So I don't know it's a problem unless someone tells me it is. So I don't know what's, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I don't know if it's settings on the phone. I don't know if it's something on my, I, you know, I, I don't know. And I apologize. I'm, I'm sorry that you're having problems, Kager 211, but, um, we're, we're trying to fix, we're trying to fix it so that we can continue to uh, let everyone experience what I think is the great content that we're providing to you without any sound quality, uh, sound quality problems. So, uh, Kager, apologize. Hopefully, we'll get that up to a five-star rating once the sound issues uh, get resolved for you. Uh, but in any event, let's get started with uh, our first Blue Feet on Tap segment. And uh, Reese Tisdale is going to do a great job talking about uh, ag water. And uh, he's got two, two kind of different uh, uh, outlooks on ag water uh, in, in various sectors of the ag water. So before we get to the great interview with Jimmy Emmons, here's, here's a great interview on Bluefield on Tap with Reese Tisdale. Take it away. Well, Reese, welcome back to another session of uh, Bluefield on Tap. Great to have you with us. 
Glad to be here, as always. Yeah, <laughs> terrific. Uh, today's uh, feature pres- feature interview is uh, uh, on agriculture, and uh, just wanted to uh, get your thoughts on where water use in agriculture is heading from from kind of the the Bluefield research perspective. Yeah, I think um, you know agriculture always gets pointed out as the largest water, uh, user of water globally, um, and that that is exactly true. I think everybody's had a little bit of difficulty figuring out exactly what is the opportunity uh, for the supply chain, but also what can we do to make it more efficient. And more recently at Bluefield, we've been looking at a couple of areas. There's been some, it's really several M&A deals that have happened uh, more re- recently with Netafem, an Israeli irrigation company, a large almost of moving towards a billion dollars in revenues just for irrigation being bought by a uh, Mexican chemical company, Mexichem. And then another area we've seen recently is, uh, and this is increasing nationwide, is the water usage for uh, the marijuana industry in the U.S., which uh, is now catching policymakers' attention, more specifically the water usage. Right, right. So let, let's let's take that first one you uh, indicated first, the the M and A deal. Uh, can you kind of break that down for us? You know what what's what's the import of it? What what do you see? Uh, is that is that a harbinger of things to come in kind of the ag sector? Uh, and and maybe tell us a little more about the deal itself. Yeah, I think so. I mean, basically, as I mentioned, uh, Netafem is the is the deal. They're bought by Mexichem. And Netafim has really been a, uh, a, a, a leading player in the industry globally as far as providing irrigation, but also smarter irrigation. I mean, that's the biggest issue is the um, use of flood irrigation versus drip irrigation. And what we're also seeing is that the uh, irrigation companies are now offering, you know, smarter, more real-time information on uh, water flows to the crops, but also they're giving feedback to the uh, to the farmers themselves, which is incredibly important, particularly uh, in the case of places like California with drought, um, flood, using flood irrigation. And, you know, I guess the step between drip irrigation would be pivot irrigation. Right. Uh, which is, which is predominant in the U.S. Got it. Um, so, and let's talk a little about uh, marijuana use uh, or marijuana water use, I should say. Um, uh, I know that it, the, primarily it's the Western states that have, um, my suspicion is at least that's where the, the biggest grow houses are going to be. Um, what? Well, I, I'll cut you off there. That's, <laughs> that's not true. The largest grow house in the U.S. is about to be built in Massachusetts, of all places. <laughs> well, well, good to know. So, uh... <laughs> so it's. Uh, I guess the point it's it's really a nationwide issue, and the and the reason it's a nationwide issue or fragmented nationwide issue is the fact that because marijuana is illegal. You know, at the federal level, it can't be uh, because uh, it can't be transported across state lines. These are basically unique markets into themselves. So Colorado is going to be unique um, from uh, from California versus Oregon versus Massachusetts or Maine. And so what we're seeing is they, these grow houses. And look, it's still early. People are trying to figure out what the impact is going to be. But 
it, it, it's going to be a $22 billion business by 2020, yeah. uh, which is pretty amazing. That, that'll make it the fourth largest uh, crop by revenue generated in the U.S. Yeah. After corn, soybeans, and fruit and nuts. But I think more importantly is California more recently had come out with um, plans to a draft cannabis cultivation policy because they're concerned about the impact of all this growing um, and its impact on watersheds and how much water is being used. Yeah, and, and I guess that's why I, my focus would be on the West in this because, uh, you know, at least that's where drought has occurred more frequently. I know that there's been droughts in other areas besides the West, but droughts, drought in the West, water supply is the bigger issue in the West versus water quality in the Northeast. Um, uh, so in terms of uh, in, in kind of in your backyard, Massachusetts, what what – what's the state looking at in terms of a uh, water policy or anything? Is, is it even on the radar or do they just kind of say, Hey, we got enough water. What? what? I, I, I don't think it's on, it's not on the radar. I think the bigger issue is going to be water quality. I think you're exactly right. Um, but they do require, they have, you know, certain requirements for water quality. They will use a lot of water, um, whether it's being sourced from well sourced or from, you know, from elsewhere. Um, and, and in the West, it is it is a bigger issue because of the drought. But we have droughts in Massachusetts too. Yeah. So we were in one, having one last year. And I think at the end of the day, every I think when you look at marijuana, people are in the, in, they look at it um, in a couple different ways. One, energy usage is really high, particularly in in states where the where the climate. Um, doesn't allow for year-round growing. You want these things to grow fast. So they're using lamps and lights, and that uses a lot of energy. Secondarily, there's the water usage. Indoor growing is more uh, more efficient from a from a uh, gallon per dollar or gallon per pound or ounce or pound of uh, of product. So you know, but I think it's high good looking back at the. Uh, M&A activity, the, the, these drip irrigation companies, whether they be Netafim or Rainbird or Jane, um, there are a number of companies that are active in drip irrigation. This may be an opportunity for them as well that they haven't really gotten into. They may not be marketing it as such because it's still illegal fed at the federal level. So I don't know if there are advantages to admitting that you're supplying uh, that sector. <laughs> yeah, uh, fascinating things to come in the uh, the water industry from from uh, Mary Jane Agriculture, uh, as well as as you indicated, a lot of the M and A activity uh, in the water space. So, um, Reese, thanks very much for coming on and giving us some great information on this Bluefield on Tap segment. Really appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Okay? No, it's great. Thanks again. You bet. Well, as always, Reese does a great job talking about. Uh, the water sector provides a lot of knowledge from uh, from Bluefield Research. So thank you very much, Reese. Really appreciate it. And now we're going to turn to the feature interview. Oh, I, sh I should also say, uh, don't forget to, to keep tuned in to the end of the podcast because we're going to put another segment in there uh, with uh, Reese Tisdale on his thoughts on the water sector and Hurricane Harvey. So that's coming up uh, after the interview with Jimmy. But uh, again, I can't say enough about what a great job Jimmy did in this interview. He, he when you when you were, when I was talking with him and trading emails, kind of getting this interview all set up, he, one thing just came to mind. He's just good people, 
He's just down to earth, salt of the earth guy. Uh, and he's, he was, he was fantastic, fantastic to talk to. Uh, I, re- I really enjoyed speaking with Jimmy and, and I think you're going to love hearing what Jimmy has to say about this, uh, new, I shouldn't say new, but, uh, it, it was new to me, uh, concept in agriculture called no-till farming and soil health, uh, with some soil health, uh, additives to it. So open the valves, fasten your seatbelts and here we go. Well, Jimmy, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate you coming on. Um, I, it's been a long time to, to try and get you on, but I, I, I want to thank you very much for taking time out of your day. I know that harvest time is coming soon, and, and uh, uh, you're a busy man, so thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Well, thanks for the invitation. Glad to be here. All right. Well, Jimmy, can you tell us a little about your background? I may have given a little bit of it away, but could you tell us a little about your background uh, so that the listeners can kind of you know, put this in context here? granddad brought my granddad to Oklahoma uh, at our current location in 1926 uh, and got him set up there and uh, so we family started farming there uh, with granddad uh, and we're still on the same property it's grown since then naturally but uh, we still have some of the original uh, farm ground so I'm third generation on the farm uh, there, my dad and my granddad have passed. So now it's, uh, my wife, Ginger, and I, and one employee, Carson Liebold. All right. Uh, and how many, about how many acres are you farming? We, we farm 2,000 uh, acres of production land, and we have about almost 7,000 acres of range land. So, uh, decent sized uh, place for this area. Okay. Uh, we have a mother cow calf uh, operation as well as the production land where we raise wheat, canola, soybeans, cow peas, uh, winter canola, uh, grain, sorghum, sunflowers. Uh, try to be a pretty diverse operation. Right, right. And you you use some, um, I don't want to call them unique, but you use some um, farming methods that aren't kind of what the typical person like uh, thinks of as farming. So can you kind of tell us a little about that? We have a soil health project started about six years ago uh, where we are, are full no-till. Uh, we also, uh, like I said, practice soil health, so that's a cover crop system uh, in between our cash crops. So when we harvest, uh, for say, like grain sorghum, uh, then we're planting a cool season uh, winter mix right behind that. And what that has allowed us to do is increase our water infiltration uh, into the soil profile, as well as build the biology in the ground, which creates nutrients for our crops too. So it's a completely different system than the, uh, what the normal uh, operation would be. Right, right. And so, uh, so no-till farming. What what exactly, you know, is it? I mean, I, th- I think the explanation you just you just provided is a good good basis. But could you expand on that a little bit? No-till farming is uh, we do not till the ground with any tillage equipment. Uh, the only thing we do is uh, when we harvest a crop, we'll pull a uh, no-till seeder back through that, which is a single-blade uh, disc drill system that just opens a small notch, drops the seed in the ground. And uh, so we don't have any exposed uh, soil 
to the elements. So when we do get a heavy rainfall event or a, a windstorm, uh, the soil stays in place. Uh, it's undisturbed. Got it. Now, uh, you, you kind of alluded to some of the benefits from a water perspective. Um, uh, specifically, it sounded like with the cover crop, but let's let's start with the actual uh, cash crop. Um, and how does no-till uh, farming, how does that impact uh, water usage on, on your cash crops? Well, the, the no-till farming, uh, by not disturbing the soil, uh, leads a natural biology. And, and the whole idea and concept behind soil health is the native prairie system was designed with multiple species, multiple animals uh, that was self-sustainable. Once we plowed the, the, the prairie up and started to uh, tilling and operating, we destroyed the soil function, which closes the soil up, the aggregation where uh, water infiltration is harder to get in. So the no-till part starts rejuvenating and fixing that. Once we add the cover crops in between uh, our cash crops, that gets the multiple species back in like the native prairie once was, simulates it. Right. So, so essentially you're just restoring the, um, the original kind of a water cycle and, and native, native cycle to, uh, to the use of the land. Yeah. And most people think, for instance, that when a lake or a pond fills up, that it's a rainfall event, it gets on top of the ground, it runs on the top of the ground down to the lake and fills the lake. That is not really the water cycle. The water cycle is designed, rain comes, it soaks into the ground, fills the profile in the ground up, then it either comes out downstream in the bottom of the creek or out a natural spring is really the way the water cycle is supposed to be. Now, in a flooding event, when the profile gets full, yes, it, when it can't take any more, then you'll have uh, the first scenario where it runs down to the creek. So we're trying to restore the natural water system so that our soil and our nutrients and, and the material on the top of the ground, the residue stays in place. Right. Now, uh, you said you've been no-till farming for six years, I think. Uh, well, We've been no-tilling since 95. We've been in the soil health system with cover crops the last six years. Got it. My misunderstanding. My, so uh, what what caused you to flip uh, and transition from traditional farming to no-till? We were at a level of high inputs, uh, high fertilizer use, high chemical use, uh, lots of tillage anymore. It's very expensive with tractors and equipment. Uh, and yet our yields, no matter how much fertilizer we could put on, uh, we're at a plateau that we couldn't get past. And so our profit margins were narrow to none and sometimes in the red, like you would be in this type of uh, scenario where we're at today. Um, and we knew we had to do something different. And uh, I had been looking at, at these possibilities and decided it was time to make a change. Then the more I studied, it's, it's like, I can't believe we were doing what we were doing. So we, we've made a dramatic change in our profitability and our input cost. 
Okay. So, and, and is, is that based on, is the profitability, and I know we're getting a little outside of water, but is, is the profitability, is that based on your, the, your expenses are lower, uh, yields are increased or, I mean, what, how's, how's that, how's that looking? Yeah, when, when right now we're 40% less on nutrients than we used to be. So that's a huge input cost. When you take tillage out of the, the system, uh, lots and lots of fuel costs are reduced. Uh, we've sold all our tillage equipment. So all them parts, repairs, depreciation, uh, all that fixed input cost is gone. So now we just have a sprayer uh, uh, where we manage uh, our chemicals, our nutrients at a variable rate where we need it, where it's applied, and a good drill. So all that has has made that better. But in the, in the process of all that, it's, it's also kept our nutrients in the ground where we applied them as well as where we grow them. The part of soil health is when you're growing these specialty cover crops, you're creating your own nutrients with legumes, uh, different uh, species that we can plant to help free up uh, the natural occurring mineralization in the ground. So uh, it, it's a win-win-win. Yeah, sounds like it. it sounds like, and and um, by keeping the nutrients in the ground, you're really impacting uh, water quality. I mean, can you can you do you have any um, idea about how water quality has been impacted by the no no-till farming? In Oklahoma, uh, our, our Conservation Commission has done it, uh, really a lot of studies in the water streams and where we apply no-till and cover crop systems. We've had several streams uh, off the, the uh, listed uh, embedded streams with nutrient load, turbidity load, and, and bacteria load. And so we know that when we apply these principles to the ground, that if you keep that soil in place and it doesn't erode uh, down to the stream banks and into, then we impact the quality of the water uh, way, way down the streams. And, and that's what we're seeing in the Gulf of Mexico is nutrient loading uh, from, from Canada to the Gulf. I mean, and that's where you have soil leaving your property where you applied nutrients and, and uh, that gets into the stream. Right, right, and uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm. This, this is fascinating uh, because you know, for for someone like me who who may not really understand all of this this stuff, it, it's it's really interesting to see how uh, you've come around to make this decision. I'm kind of curious why uh, why others haven't moved to no till. What's what's kind of the the big impediment you think? Well, a lot of it is history and, and heritage. Um, the way my granddad would have done it, the way my dad would have done it. A lot of operations, um, them type of generations still hold uh, the purse strings or the pressure that are, are not willing to change because they've been very successful at what they're doing. And quite frankly, we've come to accept that we're going to have so much soil loss uh, over the years, and that's being taught. Uh, acceptable tea loss, soil loss, and I believe that zero is the number for that. Uh, I don't want to lose any of my soil. Uh, in 
26, my granddad started a, a little ditch across our property to funnel the water from scattering across the soil uh, to directly to the river, the South Canadian River. In 1934, they had a, the Hammond flood uh, where they received 14 inches of rain overnight. It washed that small ditch 40 foot wide and 25 foot deep out that night. Wow. And so that, that was hundreds of thousands of tons of soil. And so that's when uh, the Emmons family started realizing uh, how significant conservation uh, is. And, and so we started down trying to find a better way. But quite frankly, we, we always were trying to divert water, divert the resource, or divert the wind with shelter belts, divert the water with terraces and waterways. We, we never got on the right track of infiltration is the key uh, to getting the water in the ground and the soil aggregates is, is really important. Now, uh, it's, that brings up another issue in terms of, you know, you mentioned the ditch, which I assume was used for irrigation, but uh, uh, how does water use from an irrigation perspective compare in no-till versus the traditional method? Well, once you go to no-till and your water infiltration uh, skyrockets, then now we have some irrigation that, we just use as a supplementary uh, support in, in dry years. Where used to, we relied on that uh, heavily as our water source, and yet we couldn't put in or put on over half to three quarters of an inch of water at a time or it would run off. Now when I run my pivots around, I can put on three, four inches at a time and have no runoff. And so th that's how big a range you know, we can take five, six, seven inches, and we have no water leaving our property or no soil. Wow. And that's amazing. That's amazing that, that just that simple transition has, has um, changed the, uh, you know, the soil loss and, and all that and the water infiltration ability uh, that dramatically. Yeah, and really no-till is a good step but it's only the first step until you get into a cover crop system where you have a living root in the ground roots for as long as you can through the year that's when the biology really grabs sunlight the plant does puts exudates into the ground it leaks a living root leaks into the ground liquid carbon as it's growing the microbiology in the ground feed on that carbon, and they also store that and build soil. So in a no-till situation, once you harvest a crop, if you don't plant a cover crop, then the biology has to feed on their aggregates in the soil, and so it starts collapsing again. So the system has to have a cover and a living root in the ground as many days out of the year as you can get into it for it to really work the way it the native range prairie was supposed to work. Hmm. Now, now um, when you plant, when you when you do the no-till, I just I'm just trying to envision this myself. So, let's say you've got the cover crop on, and you go out to plant the um, the cash crop. Uh, are are you removing the the cover crop, or are you just kind of going right driving right over it with a? Yeah, I will. We'll either roll that down uh, with a roller crimper and, and kill it or we'll spray a, a 
herbicide on that to to stop the cover crop from growing and just drill right into that. So essentially, if you no-till, if you would take a tabletop and say that was your soil and you pour a cup of water on it, that's going to spread out and not soak in very much. If you take a roll of paper towels or a sponge and put that as armor on the ground and now you pour water on it, it soaks in until that's full. So it's kind of a, a layman's term of what we're talking about by having cover on the ground. And so, no, we don't remove any of that. We don't plow any of that in. It, much like the native prairie, no one ever uh, disturbed it, and yet it functioned very well. Right. And so, so that cover crop, it'll, it'll actually decompose on the ground, right, and, and return the nutrients to the soil in that, that manner? Yes, and most people don't realize that earthworms, come up at night, night, that's a lot of the reason they call them night crawlers, some of the species, and they'll grab residue and pull it down into the ground and feed on it. Uh, so that also leaves water infiltration points as well as devouring and consuming the residue. Right. It, it, it's really quite amazing system if you really study it. Yeah, yeah. And so... Uh, let, let me also, we, we talked kind of about the, uh, the input side of no-till. How about the output side? I mean, what are, how, how do yields compare uh, traditional versus uh, no-till? Okay, like I said, we've cut our uh, fixed cost of fertilizer back uh, 40% at the same yield. And once we get past three years, five years in the system, then we start building yield. Because it, it, it takes a while to make the transition of your soil uh, over into uh, a cover crop system. So uh, it, it's slow. There are some guys uh, that's been doing this 20, 30 years now are, are no synthetic fertilizer, no chemicals, and their yields are 30 to 40 bushels above county yield. Wow. So it, it's amazing. Once the system gets back and regenerated, uh, what it can do. That's, a, <laughs> that's it's, I mean, it's, all, it's almost hard to believe um, that. Well, it, it, I, it, 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 it's just really amazing. I, I was to give a talk in Nebraska last year, and uh, one of the older gentlemen out in the room said, well, that won't work where I'm at. And we hear that all the time. Uh, and so I asked him, I said, Explain your your problem to me. Do you have native range? Yes. I said, do you plow your native range to take water? Because we've all been taught tillage loosens the soil where you can uh, take in water. No, I don't. I said, okay. Do you fertilize your native range where your cows run? No. I said, okay, it's sustainable. So it's creating its own nutrients. Uh now, I just went on down the list of the soil health principles. And when I got done, he said, that's, I could do that. He said, I, I'm not thinking in that terms. And I said, yeah, that's right. We've been taught that tillage in, in our traditional system is the way it's supposed to be, but it's not. We, we created all of that. I, I am kind of curious. What kind of resistance do you see from, like, say, equipment manufacturers? Um, well, they're, they're, they're a little nervous because, you know, if you're in the tillage selling business, 
But I tell them it all it opens up lots of opportunities for higher residue drills, planters. Uh, you still got to have tractors. You still got to have guidance. Uh, there's there's lots of opportunities there besides just tillage. Yeah, so it's just a small market segment. Or I shouldn't say a small; it's a big market segment. But it's a it, it would just be shifting demand within within the uh, the far, the farming community, right? Yeah, uh, one dealer told me, he said, man, that you're asking us to give up a lot. And so I asked him, I said, the mow board plow. His granddad and dad was in the equipment business too. I said, uh, how many did your dad sell? Well, that was the stay of our business. I said, how many do you sell today? Well, none, because we've changed, we've evolved to this. And I said, that's what I'm saying. You've got to change and evolve again to another way of thinking and another role of equipment. And really, all the major equipment dealers are gearing up uh, for no-till and the high residue plantings. And uh, you Google up anything, you'll see lots of new technology coming. So I, I think they realize uh, it's down the road and the, the faster we get there, the, the, the better. I mean, for the environment, green leaves, sequester CO2 out of the atmosphere and, and put that into the soils as carbon. And that's really what we need to do for the for the planet and the environment. Yeah, yeah essentially, you, you'll be um, a carbon sink. You know, the, the, the agriculture would, would essentially be a carbon sink. Uh, so rather than the, the carbon going up into the air in, in the form of greenhouse gases, you'd be uh, putting it into the ground, right? time you till, uh, CO2, carbon gases escape uh, into the air. So the less tillage, uh, you can keep that sequestered where it's supposed to be. All right. Um, now, here, here's something that I know uh, we may not have expected to talk about, but, but when you were talking about irrigation, this just popped in my head. Uh, uh, when, you, when you irrigate, are you drawn from the uh, Oglala? No, actually, I'm in a what they call a terrace deposit along the South Canadian River. Okay. Ogallala is probably about 50 to 70 miles north and west of me. Okay. And it's there that's on the fringe or edge of it. Right. Have you, now, just out of curiosity, have you talked to any, any no-till farmers uh, in the Ogallala? Yeah. I mean, lots of practices are, are beginning to grow in that area because, quite frankly, they're depleting that aquifer uh way more rapidly than it can can rejuvenate itself and so the problem is we're not infiltrating that water back in the profile back where it, it can self-sustain so yeah they're starting to scramble in areas but there's still a lot of resistance people think cover crops will take more water because you're growing more plants throughout the year but what they don't realize is when you keep the soil cooler you have less evaporation. The 25th of July here, we were 109 degrees. And so in that type of environment, low humidity, we can easily evaporate half inch to three quarters inch a day. And so if we can shut that down, then at the end of the year, we're actually water ahead. And with better infiltration, better cooling, keep evaporation down. And so it's kind of a misconception of the system. 
Right. And, and I would, I would suspect at least that, uh, you know, one, one of the things I hear, and it's, it's primarily from the city's perspective, from the urban perspective is that, you know, uh, I've had, I've had guests on that talk about buy and dry, at least in, in states that have, uh, you know, water rights that you can transfer. And, and if, mm-hmm. if, uh, the if if no till has the ability to essentially use less water that's going to mean there's going to be more water for those cities so maybe there there could be a uh, uh somewhat of a solution in there i don't know if you've heard of that uh, i'm a little familiar with, not in this area but away from here uh that i hear some of that so yeah i mean any time uh that you have a system to look at that's an alternative is better than what we're doing. And yeah. as population grows and urban areas grow, one of the two things, urban areas either build in a place in a desert where there's no water <laughs> or they build uh, where there's lots of good soil and there's lots of farming and there's a, a big, huge demand for water. So it, it, it's kind of a double axe, so to speak. Uh, so we have to partner together and find a better way for both parties to be sustainable because you got to have food production if you're going to have people. And, and you're going to have people, uh, so then you're going to have interaction of urban and rural areas. Yeah, well stated, well stated, Jimmy. Um, I, I, so, so as we're conducting this interview, for, for those of you listening home, I'm, I'm, we're, we got the video going, and I see Jimmy's got a big Oklahoma Sooners football helmet uh behind him uh on his it's a magnet on his fridge so i i just want to ask you jimmy uh i know bob stoops has stepped down so i don't want to turn this into like sooner corner but do you have any uh uh thoughts on uh on lincoln riley stepping up to be the uh, sooner's new coach well i think he's got a lot of potential i think <laughs> coach stoops had a, a a a big vision for him and uh when he come on i, I think coach riley has, has a, a great possibility of being a, a wonderful coach and and what we're hearing is the players uh have the same feeling uh so we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> yeah well you know i i, I kind of read some articles on bob stoops and i really uh i really respect him for stepping down when he did you know so that he he can live his life and you kind of hear about his how his father passed and all this and and uh so i, I commend him and and uh, i wish oklahoma football the best of luck so uh, Jimmy, I, I really appreciate you taking your time out, especially kind of that off-the-wall question I just asked you. And um, uh, I, I just wanted to say, is there anything that um, that I haven't asked you that you think is important to get across to folks about no-till farming and uh, and water consumption or anything along those lines? Well, I, I'm sure you have a diverse uh, audience of listeners and these principles would apply to the urban uh, people as well as when you're watering your yards and when you're fertilizing your yard. We, we all enjoy a beautiful lawn. Just be careful of, of how much you apply. And, and when it rains, just watch where the water goes. If it's running off your yard, running off your field, then you pretty well know that there's nutrients and sediment going down the storm drains or going down the water flow uh, is going to affect someone down the stream. Whether you're in an urban setting or a rural setting, we need to start watching what we're doing and all be respectful of, of 
the natural system and what's below us. Right, right. I, I, I like that that good worldview. So, um, uh, Jimmy, to the extent other folks want to find out more about you and no-till farming and and other information about your your operation there, what what can they uh, where can they go to find that information? Okay, we, we're on uh, Facebook. We're on Twitter. Uh, I serve on the no-till on the Plains Board out of Salina, Kansas. Uh, they have a web page and a, a Facebook page too. Uh, Oklahoma Soil Health has a Facebook page that we started where we're trying to encourage other producers uh, across Oklahoma and the, and the bigger region uh, to look and see what we're doing. Uh, you can just about Google up Soil Health cover crop systems uh, in every state and someone is practicing and out there speaking about it. And FCS is uh, really and is really promoting this. So there's lots of good resources to look us up. Great. Well, again, I've got several YouTube videos too. so you got YouTube videos too. Great. Well, uh, Jimmy, again, thank you so much for your time. I know you're you're kind of taking off uh, some some valuable time. You're speaking to me during uh, with harvest coming up. So uh, again, I I just want to tell you I really appreciate your time and uh, thank you so much. And I wish you the best of luck. You too. All right. All right. Thanks, Jimmy. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jimmy Emmons uh, from Oklahoma, the the no-till farmer. He was fantastic. Uh, I learned a heck of a lot because I don't know much about ag, but I, I learned a tremendous amount uh, in in my conversation with, uh, with Jimmy, and I really appreciate his time, especially because he was taking it off kind of right when harvest season was getting ready to hit. So, uh, Jimmy, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I thought you did a great job. Uh, well, without further ado, let's jump right into uh, our Reese Tisdale segment, our Bluefield on Tap segment that talks about the water sector and Hurricane Harvey. And here's Reese Tisdale again. Well, welcome back to the special uh, edition of Bluefield on Tap, uh, where we're going to talk about Hurricane Harvey. Uh, Reese, welcome back. Glad to be here. <laughs> hey, uh, uh, we all know the devastation that's occurred in South Texas, particularly Houston, is is kind of grabbing all the headlines just because of the number of people uh, that live there. But but can you talk to us a little about um, Hurricane Harvey and what it means for the water sector? And I'll let you kind of determine you know what elements of the water sector you want to want to address. But but I'm just kind of interested in your take on Hurricane Harvey and um, and its impact on the water sector. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, you're right. I mean, it's a terrible thing. I don't think anybody would argue otherwise. And I think in the in the immediate term, in Bluefield, we looked at it, and it's we recognize that the, the waters haven't even subsided at this point. But given the fact that we do market research, we cover the municipal infrastructure and industrial water sectors, um, we've been looking at it thinking, well, this has happened. This is a third year in a row that Houston itself has had large storm events, and that's after Katrina, that's after Rita, that's after Hurricane Sandy. And more broadly, we've been thinking at Bluefield, well, these storm events, they are increasing, whether it's climate change or not. It's the climate, and there are more storm events. It's costing an increasing amount of money, but the longer-term implications are what's happening to the Let's more specifically to Houston Water. You know, they basically, or Beaumont, Texas. I mean, they they have no water supply now. You know, th when these big events come, 
power supplies are often cut off, and then the cascading effect is water supplies are cut off, or the pumps and the networks that are in the treatment systems become overwhelmed. And it's a big problem. And I think it's a long-term problem in the U.S. because as it happens, it's there's the immediate issue. But then there's going to be, you know, talking about FEMA funding and where it's going to go and how they're going to recover. Well, they're going to have to rebuild their network, the pipes because of soil saturation, their pumps are burned out uh, in many cases. Um, Houston already had problems. They're already negotiating a consent decree with the EPA about stormwater overflows. These aren't stormwater overflows. This is a, this is bigger than that. But the the cost of this is going to increase dramatically. And I think you know I, there's pushback on reuse systems and their costs uh, in California or desalination. Um, even in Boston now. We're talking about, you know, are we going to? Is the city or the state or all of the above going to have to build a barrier similar to the Netherlands, you know, in case to protect the city from these large storm events? And they're saying, well, it could cost ten billion dollars. Well, ten billion dollars is a lot cheaper than what's going to be spent uh, in Houston, right? Um, and and or Sandy. So, I think it's. Um, it gets down to, and I, I think we've struggled for a while, like what is resiliency? Well, this is a, an example of what I think policymakers and regula regulators need to start thinking about. Um, and that in includes, you know, willing to step up and figure out ways to pay for these systems, but also to build in redundancies, but also make systems smarter so they can respond. Um, maybe it's decentralized systems. Um, there's a lot to think about, and sometimes it's just porous pavement. I mean, that would go a long way in a place like Houston because the water has nowhere else to go when the whole thing is paved. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right, and I think uh, uh, selling it to the public, you know, because no matter no matter what, the rates are going to have to go up to pay for it. You know, I, the as much as you know, you may hope for federal funding or anything like that. You know, that's only going to cover a small part of that. Uh, I mean, that tab. Yeah, I mean, like Houston, you know, and I, this, this is not to beat up on Houston. I mean, they believe me, they've they've been beat up enough. I think but their water rates have only risen 9% over the past, in aggregate, over like the past, what, four or five years. The rest of the country, it's averaged 22%. Yeah. So, um, and maybe it should be higher than 22% for all of them, quite honestly. I mean, infrastructure is getting old. It needs to be replaced repaired and kept up and um yeah it's going to be expensive and what what worries me is that if the number of these events continues to pick up at some point are, are we all are we going to run out of money right. <laughs> yeah yeah that's there's a point if it keeps up at this pace it may not be next year it may not be 50 years but at some point someone's going to say we can't do this anymore and so we need to start changing the hard part with harvey is it needs to be – it's acute. It needs to be dealt with. It's going to take years to fix, but um, policymakers need to start stepping back independent of a reactive event yeah. uh, to, to make changes. I, I think you're absolutely right, and and, and uh, one of the big things that I'm kind of thinking about here is is uh, urban planning and how 
how infrastructure, water infrastructure in particular, but all infrastructure uh, can, right. can fit into that. You know, it's, it's, it's better to go up than out. You know, may, maybe not everyone's going to have their nice little yard with the picket fence and all that, but uh, it's, it's certainly better from an infrastructure perspective. So, um, well, Reese, I really appreciate you taking some extra time to uh, talk about Hurricane Harvey, its impact on the water sector. And, uh, you know, as, as time moves on here, it's going to be really interesting to see how uh, not only Houston adapts, but, but the rest of the country adapts with these kind of infrastructure uh, issues as climate shocks uh, continue to, uh, to plague the nation. So thanks again. I really appreciate it, Reese. No, it's my pleasure. All Take right. Care. Thanks you too. Bye. Well, as always, uh, at the top of the show, Reese did a great job at the bottom of the show. He did a great job with another segment of Bluefield on tap. So thank you very much, Reese. Really appreciate, uh, you spreading, spreading some uh, water knowledge on the show for us. Well, I know this has been a long episode, so uh, I'll just, I'll, I'll uh, Finish up and say you can check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 109. You can leave a comment on the show notes or you can email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993 and you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. Uh, do me a favor, please leave a rating and review on iTunes if you uh, have been listening and enjoying the podcast. Really appreciate it. And Kagger 211, we're going to get get to that sound quality issue, but I really, I really appreciate you uh, uh, letting me know about it, and uh, hopefully we get that fixed for you. Uh, one thing I, I didn't mention earlier was uh, you can also donate to the podcast if you've been enjoying it. That'll also may, maybe even help get the sound quality issue fixed. If I, we find a, a solution and it costs some money, we can we can uh, you can help resolve that issue by donating to the podcast. Uh, you can do that on the website. You just click on, scroll down a little bit. There's a little yellow PayPal uh, donate button on the right side of the, uh, of the webpage. Uh, just click on that. Any denomination is appreciated. It kind of helps keep the water flowing, lights on, uh, whatever your uh, metaphor. Uh, it, it's, it's greatly appreciated and uh, is put to good use to help defray the expenses of putting on the podcast. Well, in closing, Please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. Listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.